Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We're out there to take country. We're out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He held me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Welcome to the second episode of Life on the Line. Today I spoke with Sharon Bowne, a veteran of the Royal Australian Air Force, a registered nurse, and now an author and a member of the Australian War Memorial Council. In the words of Victoria Cross recipient Mark Donaldson, Sharon's story is one that is rarely heard, one of compassion, commitment and courage. I'm Alex Lloyd and I'm speaking today with Sharon Bowne. Thank you, Sharon, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Sharon, what made you decide to join the military? Uh, I was already a registered nurse. Um, I had completed my three-year degree and had been working as a nurse for three years in a private hospital in Hobart when um, I decided that I had the skills, the knowledge and the experience to go out and save the world, one disadvantaged person at a time, if you like. It's a lovely, naive thought for a young nurse. And so I started to explore ways that I could do that. I wanted to deliver humanitarian aid overseas. Um, I looked at the Red Cross and I looked at the Australian Defence Force and eventually chose to join the Royal Australian Air Force. The only entry into the Air Force as a nurse was to be an officer. So my first encounter with the Air Force was my officer training, which was um, yeah, very different to anything that I had ever done before. Sharp learning curve. Yes, absolutely. I had gone from a three-year university degree where I'd been taught that everybody was equal, particularly um, in the healthcare system and in facing illness and disease to a very regimented system where suddenly not everybody was equal. There was a rank structure and I needed to learn how to work and exist within that rank structure. So it was a very steep learning curve for me. So you finished your training. What was your first deployment? Well, within 12 months of joining, I was deployed to East Timor. It was following the um, Interfet deployment led by Peter Cosgrove. Um, and I was deployed as an operating theatre nurse to the United Nations Military Hospital in Dili. What was your work there? I was working as a junior nurse in the operating theatre. Uh, our mandate was to care for the United Nations force. So every, every um, member that had been deployed from all over the world to support the United Nations mission. But there was also a mandate to provide what we call eye, life and limb saving surgery for the locals. So there was a lot of healthcare provided to the local population as well. So you saw firsthand the low standard of healthcare in the population? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it became quite evident that the local population were dealing with injuries and diseases that we hadn't seen in Australia for a very long time and that I certainly hadn't seen as a junior nurse. Um, an example would be the, uh, the horrific injuries from motor vehicle accidents. There were no safety restraints in cars, there were next to no road rules. Um, 
people would travel on the top of vehicles, hanging off the side of vehicles. So the extent of those sorts of injuries we hadn't seen in Australia for a long time. Uh, diseases like tetanus um, in children, I'd never seen that before. Uh, malaria, you know, a tropical disease that, that we don't encounter in Australia. So again, another steep learning curve for a junior nurse to be in a foreign country with next to no healthcare and providing our level of healthcare to those people. And I understand there was an autopsy of a 12-year-old girl that really stuck with you. So in my second deployment to East Timor, um, we were made aware of the findings of an autopsy um, on a young girl who had choked on intestinal worms. So that had... um, I wasn't personally involved in that case, but it had a significant effect on me because this was a condition, if you like, that could have been prevented with a very cheap medication, a medication similar to that that we give to our dogs and cats in Australia. And yet in this country there was a young girl who had died because she didn't have access to that very basic and simple level of healthcare. In June 2004, a call out to the mountain village Same changed your life forever. Can you talk me through what happened that day? Yeah, so in 2004 I was on my second deployment to East Timor Um, And this time, rather than being an operating theatre nurse, I was an aeromedical evacuation nurse. So I was part of a team that would um, deliver aid in East Timor by flying around in helicopter. And that also included retrieval. So so flying out to um, provide care and bring people back to Dili where they could get a different level of care. Uh, That day, the 2nd of June 2004, We had uh, what I would call a fairly routine call out in the afternoon. It was to go and provide aid to an East Timorese woman in the village of Same. And from what we knew, she was in obstructed labour. She'd been labouring for a while. And we feared that her unborn baby would have already died and that now her life was at significant risk. So she needed to come back to Dili where she could receive the care that she needed. We took off at three o'clock in the afternoon. There was no indication for us not to do this AME. But when we reached the mountains south of Dili, which is where Same was, Same was up in the mountain ranges, we encountered particularly bad weather, very bad weather. My only concern initially was that the weather was so bad that we were not going to be able to make it to Same. So I was worried about um, how this woman would survive without us getting to her in time. But unfortunately that day we became the casualties. The weather became so bad that um, the helicopter crashed into the village of Same. So we made it to the village of Same that day but never in the way that I had imagined. Can you describe the crash? All I remember about the crash is is the weather, really. Um, The intense rain on the windscreen of the helicopter, the pilots and the rescue crewmen working hard to maintain control of what was happening. They they certainly worked very hard to see where they could land to try and gain control of the helicopter. But ultimately I realised when I looked through that front windscreen that we were flying towards the ground. We were getting closer and closer to the trees. And that's when I realised that we weren't getting out of this. Um, I was either about to die, I accepted the fact that I was about to die and that if I didn't I was going to be very badly hurt. And I don't remember much more after that. I I said goodbye to my friends and family. I had enough time. I I guess that's the frightening thing about the helicopter crashes. I had time 
time to realise what was happening and time to actually say goodbye to the people that I loved. But then I don't remember the impact. The next memory I have is of being woken up, if you like, um, by the doctor that had been travelling with me and, and him helping me out of the helicopter. What were the extent of your injuries? When I came to, I was in excruciating pain um, in my lower back uh, and my left leg didn't seem to be there. It was there, I could see it, but it didn't respond to me. Uh, and I felt that my jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth, but I had no pain in my jaw. And that's an indication, I guess, of just how much pain I had in my back was I couldn't feel uh, my jaw, which had been seriously broken. And it, it would, wouldn't be until I was back in Brisbane uh, the next day that the full extent of my injuries was known. I had a burst wedge compression fracture of L3, so my third lumbar vertebra. I had four fractures in my jaw and I had chemical burns to my back and my shoulders where I had been um, soaked in aviation fuel from the crash. Did your injuries put you at risk of discharge? Absolutely. It wasn't, probably wasn't something at the forefront of my mind in those first couple of days. No. It was trying to come to terms with what had happened and what my injuries were. And as a nurse, understanding what that meant for me. And then I made the link with what does this, this mean for my nursing career and what does this mean for my military career? And at that time, so 2004, uh, it was a time before the Defence Forces Rehabilitation Program. So I knew that it was much easier to administer my medical discharge than it was to try and rehabilitate me and retain me in service. So that was certainly very challenging. Well, your inside knowledge there probably helped you fight that discharge, I imagine. It would have been quite hard for the average soldier in your situation to fight against that. Well, yeah, I was quite fortunate. I was still a very junior nursing officer, but I had that medical knowledge and I was working within a, a health unit, so I was surrounded by people who understood my injuries and I had an incredible commanding officer who was very supportive. And I felt that I had lost enough in that helicopter crash. I had sacrificed enough. I was not about to give up my career. I loved being a nursing officer in the Air Force and if there was any way that I could hold on to that, then I was going to fight hard to ensure that I did. I think that's a really admirable determination. Thank you. So then you got to recuperate and spend some time at home convalescing? Yeah, I only spent five, well, I spent two weeks um, in the hospital and then a further three weeks at home. And by that stage, I was sick of myself. <laughs> I'd never been, um, you know, stuck with nothing to do for so long. And Again, because I had the luxury of working in a health unit, I returned to work only on half days and really it just meant turning up at the unit in my uniform, going to physio and then heading home. That was usually uh, the most that I could do in my day. But I think that was very crucial to my ongoing recovery. I wasn't stuck at home on the couch feeling sorry for myself. Um, I was back with the people that cared for me and those that were also invested in ensuring that I could stay. You had focus and you had a goal. Yes. Some days the hardest thing was lacing up those dreadful boots. <laughs> when you've got a broken back, um, getting those boots on is not easy. The hardship doesn't end there though. In February 2005, you're still recovering when your mother very sadly lost her five-year battle with breast cancer. 
and two months later, your friend medical assistant Sergeant Wendy Jones is killed in a helicopter crash, along with eight other ADF personnel in humanitarian operations in Indonesia. You faced all of that in 10 months between your accident and Wendy's death. How did you find the strength to fight the medical discharge and to keep going in the face of your injuries? Good question. I'm not sure. I would say that um, I'm fairly stubborn, fairly determined. I had to keep focused on the goal that I wanted to stay, that I, um, that I wasn't ready to give up my job. My mother was crucial to my rehabilitation. Um, I saw how concerned she was for me after the crash and um, that I guess that drove me to show her that I was fine, that everything would be okay, that I could overcome this. But in, in losing mum in that very short period of time, um, I lost not just that reference point in relation to my rehabilitation but, um, you know, as a young woman I lost my reference point in life. I lost that person that I could call to deal with these major life events. She suddenly wasn't there. It, it was also difficult because as a nurse, it had always been my plan to care for my mother. I knew that she would not survive her breast cancer. I knew that with every treatment that we undertook or she undertook, we were fighting for time, not for a cure. And yet I always planned to be there to care for her. Um, and the nature of my injuries was such that I couldn't do that in the way that I wanted to. So that was another significant loss. After the crash, when I was back at work, I was determined to speak about it. I was determined to educate, if you like, my colleagues about the necessity to remain fit and healthy because I believe that's what enabled me to survive the crash and to take, you know, to take their training seriously so that if they were ever in an incident like mine, they would have the best chance of survival to learn about the seeking crash and to learn about um, the fact that I had friends on board who did not survive, in a little way I felt, I felt incredible guilt. I hadn't been able to protect them. I hadn't been able to keep them safe, which was probably a naive thought anyway. But it was, it was devastating and, and still is. Um, if I could trade going through my own accident with saving... Paul, Lynn and Wendy and everybody on that helicopter, then absolutely. I would endure what I have endured just to have them back. I think that's a sentiment many veterans would relate to. It must have scared you then a bit later when your then boyfriend, now husband Conway, an army man, was in a helicopter crash of his own. Yes, that's probably almost an annoying helicopter crash <laughs> because he called me at work one day and um, left a message to say, um, you know, hi, everything's fine, I've just had a little incident, I'll talk to you later. And to know that what he was doing that day, he wasn't flying for army, he was flying for a civilian company doing power line patrol. So in, in one sense it was reassuring to have heard his voice on that message, in another for him to say I've just had a little bit of an incident without any detail was frustrating. Um, but... Yeah, the nature of his accident was really quite serious. So he had a tail rotor failure um, above power lines. It should have ended catastrophically for him and for everybody on board, but um, it didn't. I, and I, I put that down to his years of flying experience. He says you know, it was nothing, but to be able to put that helicopter down as safely as he did 
with no injuries to anybody on board was amazing. So, yes, I started to think, is this me or is it just the circle of people that I mix with? But um, there's just, you know, one aviation incident after another. But I guess that's one of the things that comes with being in the military um, is that you are exposed to that higher level of risk and danger. And I just happen to be experiencing that sometimes these things become a reality. There was a silver lining that day, though, for Conway. He had some exciting news about a new appointment. Yes, he wasn't. I was, you know, I was very focused on the details of the crash. He was more excited about the fact that he'd just been appointed by Chief of Army as um, the official army war artist and that he was heading off to Iraq. So, again, the reality of, of being a, in a relationship in the military was that I'm still recovering from my injuries, trying to keep everybody around me safe. And, you know, here's my um, partner telling me that he's about to go to war. So there's this sense of loss of control that I can't protect everybody, I can't keep them all safe. They're still going to keep doing what they love doing despite what I've experienced. But you kept doing and loved what you were doing yourself. Uh, when you returned to service, part of your training was a day doing Hewitt, helicopter underwater escape training. For the listeners, can you first describe what Hewitt is? Um, well, Hewitt is when we... Um, train to understand what we would do if a helicopter or any aircraft crashed in water. So it's basically teaching you how to escape from a helicopter that or a, an aircraft that is immersed in water. And I had never done it before, not before my helicopter crash. So this was my first experience of Hewitt. I knew sitting in the comfort of my office that it wasn't something that I wanted to do. Yet I was... Um, I was the commander of the health facility in Townsville by this time and I required all of my aeromedical evacuation trained health staff to undertake Hewitt. I knew that if I was going to ask them to do it, I needed to lead the way and do it myself. And what's the experience of doing Hewitt like? Can you describe the actual training itself? Uh, for me, it was incredibly traumatic. And I think you find two groups of people who have experienced Hewitt, those that love it and I think maybe they must be the adrenaline junkies of the world, uh, and those that either hate it with a passion or just endure it. They knew <laughs> that they know that they have to do it, so they just get on and do it. But for me, it was it was traumatic. Uh, the first half of the day was spent in theory lessons, learning about how to escape from a crashed aircraft in water. Um, watching some videos of vehicles immersed in water and people escaping from them. And um, all of that occurred before lunchtime and by that stage I had absolutely no desire to get into that simulator. Um, but I had one of my young medical assistants on the course with me. So there was this pressure that if I expect her to get into that simulator, then I have to get in too. So I had a long chat with the training staff. I told them what my background was, what my experience of helicopter crashes was and that I didn't want to get into the water. Now they put a special helmet on me which <laughs> meant that they could identify me in there and reassured me that they could get the simulator out of the water in a matter of seconds, that there was no real risk to me. So they were trying to convince me that, you know, we understand your fear, however, let us reassure you that you are safe. And I guess that's one of those really intense experiences that highlighted to me post-traumatic stress disorder 
no matter how hard I tried to rationalise that this was a safe activity, my brain or my mind, my entire body was saying to me, do not do this, do not get into that seat because you've done this once before, being the helicopter crash itself, and you were seriously hurt. So it's about fighting against that um, new instinct not to do these sorts of things. I went through it. I hated it. I passed. Um, but as a result, I found any future experience of being in the water was very different. I used to, I loved swimming before I did Hewitt. I don't love swimming anymore. So it almost exacerbated that, that fear I had of flying. I now had compounded that with this fear of being stuck in a vehicle underwater. Did you feel that was a bit of a catch-22, being you know part of the Air Force but also having that fear of flying now? Yes, yeah. This job that I had fought so hard to, to, to keep, to stay in the Air Force, to continue to serve, was going to confront me with these things that, that frightened me, um, that I was still going to be required to fly in helicopters. In fact, one of the most frightening helicopter flights that I endured after my crash was... As ADC to the Minister for Defence, we went to North Queensland after Cyclone Larry and we were flying around a mountainous area in the rain, surveying the damage of the cyclone. And I remember looking out the window thinking, you know, the last time I was in this situation, we crashed. So I started to have those feelings rise up in me of, of, I guess, panic and anxiety that you're going through this again, you're in the same situation again, this will end badly. And I remember saying to myself, no, it's not going to happen. And then, so I had this internal dialogue, but you said that last time. When you were in the helicopter in Timor, you said it wasn't going to happen and it did. Okay, so that's no good. Well, if it happens this time, then I'll stop flying. And then I said to myself, how stupid, (laughs) how stupid are you? How many helicopter crashes do you have to endure before you will finally give up flying. I haven't given up flying. I just don't enjoy it. Thankfully, you haven't had to find out the maximum number just yet. No, I hope I never do. Let's talk about your time as ADC. What inspired you to apply for that role? And can you also explain for listeners what the role is? There came a point in my recovery where I realised that for some of my colleagues, I was always going to be the broken nurse that survived a helicopter crash. I started to feel that I was somehow being protected from service. So again, I had fought to continue to serve. And yet I was aware that there may be individuals around me who didn't completely want me to do that. So I was missing out on opportunities to deploy, basically. And so I thought, right, I think I need to have a break from health. I need to have a break from Air Force Health and go and do something a little different for a while. The opportunity came up to apply for the aide-de-camp position, the positions. Uh, there are a number of them. It's a military aide who assists the service chiefs, the minister, in their day-to-day duties, particularly in travelling around the country and around the world. And I was fortunate enough to be selected to be ADC to the Minister for Defence. So in that position, I would provide him a military liaison between his office, which is all civilian and um, primarily politically focused, with the Australian Defence Force so that he would know where we were going, who we were seeing and what was expected of him on those visits. And the Defence Minister for that time was? Dr Brendan Nelson. So that was quite funny. I had been selected to work for Senator Robert Hill 
Uh, two days before I was due to start work, Senator Hill announced his resignation. He was um, moving on. And so then there was these the couple of days where we had to wait for um, Prime Minister Howard to announce who the new minister was. I had made this decision that I needed a break from health and then you know, I found out that I was about to go and work for a doctor. <laughs> so, but he, he was a lovely man. Um, he is a lovely man and it was a great privilege to be able to work for him. So a military officer in the political world, that must have been a strange thing to adapt to. Yes, absolutely. It was an incredible experience because I got to work in Parliament House and have that level of exposure to our political system um, and the individuals that work within it. But at the same time, I was very isolated from defence. I was a uniformed person working in the civilian office. So it was a, a yeah, it was a great experience, but one that um, was very different to anything I had ever done before and anything that I've done since. Are there highlights from attending those hotspots in the Middle East with the Defence Minister? The greatest privilege of um, travelling with the Minister in the Middle East, and we did this on two occasions, was that I got to visit the entire Australian operation. So in his role as Minister, he obviously wanted to see where our men and women were working and what they were doing, and I got to go along with him. So I, we um, travelled through Iraq and Afghanistan and all of the support bases, and I got to show off, in a way, I guess, what my colleagues did, how passionate they were, what an incredible job they do, um, particularly in the deployed environment. So that was a great privilege for me. Your time in Canberra ended with the 2007 election of the Rudd government, and you returned to Air Force Health. Where were you posted next? Uh, I was posted to Townsville. So Conway was um, in Townsville as a helicopter pilot with 5th Aviation Regiment. Yeah, it was time to spend some time with him. But also during my time with the Minister had had some dealings with the Defence Community Organisation, uh, supporting Defence families in particular who had experienced the death of a loved one in uniform. And that was something I wanted to do more of. I wanted to, again, stay outside of health be close to Conway, but provide that incredible support to our defence families in their greatest time of need. And I was very privileged in that particular posting to have the opportunity to do that. And you find yourself back in the Middle East with Air Force Health? Yes, yeah, so eventually I, was, uh, I returned to Air Force Health after a year with DCO and was appointed to command um, an Australian critical care team, so an Air Force critical care team that was to be embedded with a Dutch health facility in Tarrenkau. And what was your role there? I was the officer in charge, um, but also as it was a critical care team, we had an operating theatre team and an ICU team. So I was double-hatted in a way that I could assist with the clinical care in the operating theatre. So your role was obviously first and foremost providing combat health support to the NATO-led force, but you would have helped the locals as well. Yes, again, similar to the mandate that I discussed in relation to East Timor, we provided healthcare to the NATO force, so all countries that were participating in that operation, including Afghanistan. So there were um, members of the Afghanistan National Army and the police force that we cared for. But we also had that mandate to provide eye, life and limb saving care to the local nationals. So that was our exposure to the the local population. Do any particular patients stand out in your memory? They probably all do. They're a wonderful population of people in that they're, they are incredibly resilient. We saw a level of resilience that I had never witnessed before. 
Um, in particular, there was a young teenage girl who came into the hospital with her father. We didn't tend to see many females in Afghanistan. Um, so to see her come in was a surprise in itself. She and her father had been walking for a couple of days from their village um, because she had abdominal pain. What struck me about this young girl was that she didn't overtly exhibit that she was in a lot of pain. She was a very quiet girl and she did everything that we asked her to. You know, we asked her to hop up onto an examination bed so that she could be examined. We asked her to hop off so we could weigh her, hop back onto the bed. Um, and then the surgeon decided that um, she needed to go to theatre. She had a uh, suspected appendicitis. Um, so we then asked her to hop up onto the operating table. So she made all of these movements that we requested of her without complaint. When we um, put this young girl to sleep and, and opened up her abdomen, it revealed that she had two litres of pus in her abdomen from a burst appendix and yet she had shown no sign of being in such ill health. Her life was at significant risk, yet she very quietly did everything that we asked of her um, and we were amazed. We were amazed by her resilience. Thankfully, um, she survived and, and recovered well. But hers was not an uncommon story. Um, the locals were incredibly resilient. You were in Afghanistan during a difficult time for our forces. To give your deployment some context, Mark Donaldson was performing the actions that would earn him his Victoria Cross during this period. How intense was the workload of tending to our own troops? We had a particularly intense um, couple of days around the Battle of Anakalai, which is the battle um, in which Mark Donaldson earned his VC. It's also the battle in which um, explosive detection dog Sabi went missing. And I was the hospital uh, duty officer that day. So I was responsible to the commanding officer for what we would call the bed state of the hospital. How many beds do we have? How many casualties can we take in? And as the casualties come in, you know, it was my job to, to allocate them to beds and ensure that the hospital continued to function efficiently. Uh, it also meant that I received communication about the incoming casualties. I was the person in the facility that would receive the nine liner, which is a form of communication that comes in off the battlefield to tell us about a casualty. Nine lines of information about the condition of the casualty, where they are and, and what's being done. And on this particular day, I received a nine-liner about an Australian casualty. And whilst we provide the same level of care to every patient, regardless of who they are or what their role is, there's always a, an emotional response to knowing that there's an Australian coming in. Is it somebody that you know? Is it somebody that you had breakfast with this morning? Um, what's the connection? There is instantly a connection. On that day... The nine liners continued to roll in to a point where I had the thought that how many more can there be? How many more can we take? So I started to question, were we able to deal with another nine liner? They were the casualties of the Battle of Anakalai. Fortunately, we didn't see Mark Donaldson that day. We didn't know of what he had done that day. Um, our focus was on caring for his, his mates, his colleagues, um, and ensuring that they were safe and that they could return to Australia. And you eventually return to Australia yourself. When you come back home and get to slow down and the dust settles, how did you feel? The hardest thing about um, Afghanistan was leaving. If I could have stayed, and I think for most of my team, if we had the choice to stay, we would have stayed. And I'm not sure at what point we would have come home because having been there, there's this knowledge 
of the need to be there, the difference that we could make, the lives that we changed, the lives that we saved, and to turn your back on that desperate situation and leave people um, was very difficult to do. We weren't leaving them without healthcare. People had come in to replace us. But this freedom to be able to hop on a plane and leave Afghanistan behind and to come back to our very privileged way of life, there's almost an incredible guilt associated with that. Um, How dare I? How dare I go back home and enjoy what I do in my life whilst I leave these people behind me? So leaving Afghanistan was particularly difficult. And then once I was home, um, I began to realise that the level at which I had been functioning in Afghanistan, you know, we we call it hypervigilance. I was constantly switched on in Afghanistan, constantly prepared and waiting for the next casualty, uh, looking after my team and their needs. So it, it was an active process when I came home of slowing down, of... I had to stop checking my watch and wondering what time it was in Afghanistan and who was on shift and what would be happening. Um, So there was a transition of of slowing down again. Did you experience any PTSD? Um, I was eventually diagnosed with PTSD but not in relation to Afghanistan. It was in relation to my helicopter crash and my fear of flying. But there was one surprising effect of Afghanistan that actually happened whilst I was there. Um, was that I developed an incredible dislike of red meat. Um, Now, whether that had anything to do with the amount of trauma that we saw and the severity of the trauma that we saw or maybe just the Dutch cooking, (laughs) I don't know. But that's something that's persisted is that following my time in Afghanistan, I, I I feel physically ill when I see red meat. How did you respond to the PTSD diagnosis? I fought it. It wasn't a label that I wanted. I understood the stigma that still existed around mental health in Australia and in the Australian Defence Force. I felt that it was a sign of weakness. I felt that compared to my colleagues that had died in the seeking crash and many of my patients who had endured much more serious injuries than mine, that me not being able to cope with my trauma to an extent that I was diagnosed with PTSD made me weak. So it was something that I really struggled to accept. I really fought against being labelled in that way. And how did you change your outlook on that? I began to understand um, my PTSD. I I guess I began to rationalise it, is that I was afraid of flying. I was afraid of being anywhere near aircraft. I was afraid of being hurt and I was afraid of fear because there was an intense fear in the back of that helicopter. But to me that was a fairly natural reaction, a normal reaction to a very abnormal situation that I now had a lived memory. My mind and my body knew what the consequences of a helicopter crash are, what the consequences of flying in helicopters are and... It was just trying to protect me. It still is to this day. It is trying to prevent me from ever putting myself in that situation again. And I needed to acknowledge that. I needed to understand it on that level so that I could begin to deal with it. In understanding my symptoms and my reaction to my experience, I was then able to begin to live with it rather than fight against it. In 2014, you spoke at the Australian War Memorial's Anzac Day Dawn service. Your speech was very powerful and you gave an insightful perspective on modern war. 
Before we talk about it further, I've highlighted a part of the speech I'm hoping you can read for listeners. I have awaited their return and tended their wounds, never able to fully comprehend the darkness of man that they encountered upon their journey. I have witnessed their adrenaline-fueled highs of survival and their immense depths of despair at the loss of a mate. I have laughed reservedly at the often black-humoured stories of soldiers who photographed their legs before a patrol, just in case they never saw them again, and faced the reality of their need to loosely wear a tourniquet on each limb, ready to stem the almost inevitable hemorrhage that could end their life. I have been privileged to hear of unimaginable acts of bravery and self-preservation, and I have stood silently to attempt to pick up the pieces when it all falls apart. I have worn their blood. So many of us have worn their blood. Can you tell me about the writing of this speech? I had been asked by Dr Nelson, who was now the director of the Australian War Memorial, if I would speak at the Anzac Day service on 2014. He had instigated a, what we call a pre-dawn service where traditionally um, readings out of diaries and letters of those that have served uh, are made as the crowds gather for the dawn service. He wanted me to give an account of contemporary service in Australia and he offered that um, the War Memorial would provide me with those diary entries and journal and letters or I could write my own speech about my own experience. And I was a bit shocked at this. Um, I said to him, you know, in an age where we have VC recipients from contemporary service, so recipients of the Victoria Cross, why did he need me? Um, he felt that I could provide an account of contemporary service for Air Force and as a woman. And he already had Ben Robert Smith to deliver the main address. So that was covered. So I turned my mind to writing it and what I wanted to say. I didn't particularly want it to be a speech about me or about my service, even though that was what was requested of me. I wanted it to be an account of those for whom I had provided care and those with whom I had served. I wanted, I wanted them in the first place to understand how important their service is. And I wanted to share that with the rest of Australia. I wanted them to understand what these men and women endure and what they do for each of us in the service of their country. And the fact that on this Anzac Day, you may not know who they are. Um, as I said in the speech, many of them will opt to wear a dark suit instead of their uniform. They will opt for that anonymity, not for the praise and the recognition, and that it's important to acknowledge that some of them are battling with unseen injuries and experiences and that the least that we can do for them to repay the debt is to acknowledge them and to care for them and to ensure that they are safer here in Australia than they ever were on the battlefield. And Sharon, you are now retired at the rank of Wing Commander. You were discharged from the RAAF in September 2015. Why was that? It was uh, 11 years after my helicopter crash and I knew for those 11 years that my injuries would, particularly my spinal injury, would continue to degrade. It's the nature of, um, of my particular injury. And 11 years later, I simply could not meet the physical requirements of my job anymore. So that medical discharge that I had fought for so long eventually caught up with me and I had to accept that I was no longer 
fit enough to continue to serve. You might be out of the military, but you are still continuing to serve as a member of the Australian War Memorial Council. Yes, yes. So an incredible privilege that I have had for the past 12 months um, is as a council member of the Australian War Memorial. In my, my new stage of life, I guess, I get the great privilege of commemorating everything that our men and women in the Australian Defence Force have done in the service of their country and ensuring that we learn some lessons from that. It's not the glorification of war or who won a particular battle. It's about what these men and women were prepared to do for each other and what they're prepared to do for us. And there's a great deal to be learned from their stories. I've touched on some key moments of your story in our chat today, Sharon, but there's a lot more to it. In fact, you've written an autobiography. Yes, I have. Following on from that um, Anzac Day speech in 2014, I had people, both civilians and uniformed personnel, contact me and say, um, you've been able to put into words what we know but what we could never say. And for the civilians it was, you've been able to provide us an insight into service that nobody else ever has. And there had always been strong encouragement from people around me to write my story. They felt that I had um, a good story to tell. And particularly my husband, Conway, felt that it was a story that needed to be told. And so that level of support and encouragement and the feedback from my speech, I, um, I wrote my military memoir called One Woman's War and Peace. And if people want to look the book up or get in touch with you, Sharon, they can reach you on Facebook? Yes, yes. I have a, um, an author's page, so Sharon Bound Author on Facebook. Um, yeah, please connect with me there. And a flow-on effect from the book is that I'm invited to speak particularly to ex-service organisations and veteran groups all over the country, which is another great privilege to be able to share my story with those groups. Well, thank you for sharing it with us today as well. Sharon, I am deeply moved and inspired by you. Your strength of character makes you a real role model and I think we're all very lucky to have your continuing service to our country through the War Memorial. Thank you very much and thank you for your interest in our stories. Again, it's important that those stories are told. Thank you. Thanks for your time today, Sharon. Do look up on Facebook, Sharon Bound's author and public speaker page, and give it a like. You can get your copy of Sharon's book, One Woman's War and Peace, for the full story. We'll also post a few photos from Sharon's career on our podcast, social media feed, and website, so check that out. This chat with Sharon is one of two episodes we released today to celebrate the launch of Life on the Line, so be sure to also check out Angus Horden's conversation with Vietnam veteran Sandy McGregor. We also have our first bonus episode coming out this Friday, so subscribe to the podcast to get all content. Join in the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. Don't forget to check out our website too at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>